You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. The scripture reading today comes from Revelations 19, 11 through 21. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God, uh, the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing on the sun, And with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of the mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth, with their armies gathered to make war against him, who were sitting on the horse and against his armies. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophets, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that comes from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is the word of our Lord for our church, and it is given for our good. Thanks be to God. Merry Christmas. (laughs) Let's pray and ask for God's help as we reflect on this passage. Let's pray. Our Lord, we do trust that your word is good and that is given for our benefit and our edification for perfecting us and purifying us, making us into the people you want us to be. Father, uh, all the time spent studying this passage, all the time spent listening could be a tremendous waste, lest your spirit come and pour your blessing upon this, the preaching of your word. So we pray to you that you would send that great writer and that your word would indeed be living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, and it would do work in our midst even this morning. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, December 15th, 1969, here in Toronto, I don't know if anyone was here in Toronto on that date, maybe, it's a chance, a couple people, Um, Torontonians were surprised, there were 30 of the largest billboards in the city, they were purchased uh, by a a particular campaign, there were thousands of posters posted all over the city with tons of handbills all over Dundas Square. And the billboards were a white background with a very simple font, black lettering, which read, The war is over, if you want it. Love and peace from John and Yoko. 
This was the culmination of some peace practices and some, some countercultural protest that John Lennon and Yoko Ono had been participating in since their marriage only a couple months previous. And they took the date of December 15th to buy major billboards in cities like New York and LA and Rome and Paris and Helsinki and Tokyo and Hong Kong, really uh, 10 of the biggest cities of the world. And they thought they could use the Christmas season with this uh, sort of marketing push to call for the end of the war in Vietnam. The war could be over. And as you would know, uh, this campaign would pick up steam, and two years later, they would release their Christmas protest song entitled, Happy Christmas, The War Is Over. I'm sure you've heard of it, even if you don't know, you're, you've heard it um, as they sing. You hear the choir sing in the background that the war is over, if you want it, the war is over now. Now, the Christmas season is a natural time for peace advocates to, to push for and advocate the ending of a war, especially a war that they felt was unjust. There's a sort of jolly spirit in the air and a push for human goodwill to get along, and it seemed fitting to start the campaigns, in a sense, during this sort of lead-up to Christmas. And yet, and yet, what I want to argue this morning, and what I want to hopefully direct your eyes to and make a case from in this passage is that as we think about celebrating Christmas, though it feels natural that it would be a time to talk about peace, the Christmas season is actually all about war. God sent his son to the earth, and he came to earth to pick a fight. And that's what this passage is talking about. Not a fight with tanks, not a fight with grenades and bullets, not a war with corrupt leaders and politicians with mixed motives, but a very real war nonetheless that involves submission of kings, that involves judgment and rulings. And what I want to argue this morning is that the Christmas season, as we think about the lead-up to the Christmas season, is a season about war. John, the author of Revelation, has been exiled into an island of Patmos, and he was exiled by the Roman emperor at the time. He's punished, sent off to an island to sort of uh, presumably end his life. And during this time, he is sitting in the island of Patmos, one of these early leaders of the church, and he's reflecting on the fact that God has sent his son Jesus to come into this world as a baby, that Jesus walked on this earth and taught many things that we've been looking at in the Gospel of Matthew, that he performed many tremendous miracles that captivated crowds. He built a huge following, and yet his, his legacy and his life seemed to come to a tragic ending at the cross where he died, and he was buried and his closest followers left, there was almost no one there who would have identified as associated with the movement of Jesus. And yet, he, three days later, he rose from the dead, and he appeared to many, and he ascended into heaven. And he's, as he's ascending into heaven, now the church that is left on earth in the wake of his ascension is under extreme persecution by the Roman emperor, Empire. A consistent and persistent persecution as well by the Jewish people who once, uh, you know, identified these people as sisters and brothers. It's a time of tremendous suffering and persecution. Even families are divided against family. And in this time of great trouble, as John is experiencing persecution, as he's detached from his church family and exiled in punishment to this island of Patmos, presumably to die a miserable and lonely death, he's wondering, what is Jesus doing what is he doing now? Did he come here just to start trouble, die, resurrect, ascend to heaven to kick up his feet and leave us alone? And in the midst of his prayers and his frustration, he's given a vision, an apocalyptic vision, a glimpse sort of beyond the thin veil that separates the heavenly realm and the earthly realm. 
And these visions that he's given are not to be understood literalistically. I've tried to think of good ways to encourage you to understand these visions he gets. Maybe one way to think about them is they're kind of um, animated political cartoons. That they're in some senses sensory and uh, sensational on purpose to try to evoke your imagination and provoke you as to what is going on. In the same way a picture is worth a thousand words, you know, this picture, I, if I was really terrified of one of the uh, pigeons, you know, flying in during the service, during the sermon, right? I mean, a picture is worth more than a thousand words. It will control and animate your emotions as you just heard it read. And what John is given is this vision into heaven. It's like the roof of it being ripped off here and the thin veil that separates the realm of God and our realm is, is removed. And John sees what is going on in heaven. And what he sees stimulates his imagination. And what he understands is that Jesus is far from sitting in heaven with his feet kicked up. They ascended Jesus. He, he's far from indifferent to the cries of his church as they're suffering. What we find out is that Jesus is in heaven, seated at the right hand of God, and he is observing, he's, he's calling orders in a battle room. He is fighting a battle, and what I want to look at this morning is how this battle is being fought, okay? How is Jesus fighting this battle now? And I want to look at three things. There's three perfect paragraphs I saw, I saw, I saw in this passage. I want to look at the way in which Jesus is leading his people by his word, I want to look at the way Jesus is stripping his people of their flesh and the ways in which Jesus is protecting his people by judging the nations, okay? So how is Jesus fighting this battle now? Let's first look at the way that he's fighting it by leading his people by his word. He's leading his people by his word. Where do we see this? Well, there's a lot of things in the book of Revelation that people don't agree on, that scholars don't agree on. There's a lot. But one thing that everyone agrees on about is that this picture of the warrior at the beginning sitting on the white horse, everyone agrees that this is a picture of Jesus. He's sitting on a white horse and his name is faithful and true. We read though that he is, that he judges and he makes war. His eyes are like flames. Earlier in John's vision in Revelation 1 we find that Jesus is described this way. Verse 13, we read that his clothes are, uh, his robe is white, but it's dipped in blood, something we'll talk about later. And he's given a name that no one knows. Now, this is interesting because we're told a lot of names. He's called the Word of God. He's called faithful. He's called true. Um, and yet he's given sort of a name that no one knows. By this, I think John is saying his character and who he is cannot be contained in any way, shape, or form. He's beyond comprehension. We can get glimpses of who he is, but we can never fully understand who he is. Now, now this, is, this is clearly a picture of Jesus, and the real debate of this passage comes down to this question. Is this Jesus coming at the end of history to make a judgment, or is this some other time period? And I'm convinced for a variety of reasons, I could argue with you about it a lot longer if you want to spend some time talking about it, um, that what we are seeing here is not the, the final climactic battle sort of, of history when history is rolled up and brought to a conclusion. The argument would be a lot longer to make, but I'm convinced in chapter 18, as we see the fall of Babylon, that John is being told that Jerusalem and the temple will be judged, and that is sort of what is being foreseen. I'm convinced Revelation chapter 1, when John gets this vision, he's told, uh, behold, these things will happen soon. I'm convinced that the majority of what we read in Revelation are things that will happen relatively soon to the time with which John is given, uh, with which John is given the vision. And so I'm convinced that we, get, we have a picture here of something that happens between the destruction of Jerusalem, which we read about in chapter 18, and the final judgment, which will come after a long period of time, which Lyndon will preach on 
uh, next week with chapter 20. I am convinced that what we see here is what Jesus finds himself doing between the fall of Jerusalem and between his second coming, what he is doing now. If you could get a glimpse of where he's at right now, this is what he is up to, and he is fighting a battle. But it's a battle that's so different from all the warfare that you might see on your newsfeed. Because it's a battle that's won by a sharp sword, which comes out of his mouth and strikes down the nations. I'm convinced that what we are seeing in this picture is an image of what Jesus finds himself doing until his final climactic return. He is, by his word, conquering nations. By his very word, no bombs, no tanks, just his word. Kings are taking their crown and they're surrendering to him. They're giving their crown to him. And that's why his head is covered in all of these diadems, all these crowns. This war is a war that is going on that is not fought with bombs or tanks or bullets. He wins simply by his word. Now, this picture in Revelation of, of, of Jesus' sort of mouth being like a, a, a sharp sword, his word being like a sharp sword which comes, is not a picture that's foreign in the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 4, we read that the, li- the word of God is living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing divisions of soul and of spirit, joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intention of our heart. What is Jesus doing right now? He's not relaxing in heaven. He's not. He's the one who has called the word of God, and he has come with a sword coming out of his mouth, and he is marching not in military fatigues, but he's marching in a robe that is covered in the blood, his blood that was spilt on the cross at the first climactic victory of his battle where he sheds his own blood for his people. That's why he's riding into war covered in blood. You'd expect him to ride into war clean, ride out of war covered in blood, but he's riding into war covered in blood because the climactic battle for this kingdom took place at the cross, where he won the climactic battle not by fighting, but by giving his life, by letting his enemies overtake him. That was the means by which the kingdom becomes, uh, starts to roll in and becomes clear and full in this world. And now between uh, the time of his death and the time of his return, what is he doing? He is engaged in a battle where with a robe covered in his blood, he is sending his word to the earth to make kings to bow down to him and to, res- to surrender to him. And following right behind him, you read in verse 14, are all these, his people who are dressed as warriors in white robes that he has given to them because of his death on the cross. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say this. If you want to understand what it means to be God's people in this time, the time between his first coming and his second coming, what, what should we find ourselves doing? What should we be looking for and expecting? We shouldn't be expecting God to come and encourage us to take up arms and sort of defend the, na- or, you know, fight the nations of this world or defend the nations of the world. These things might happen, but they're unimportant to, in some senses, what Jesus is actually doing. Right now, by his word, right at this very moment, not just in our church, but in churches all over the world, he is fighting a war right now by his word. And by his word, he is causing people, great people, mighty people, people of intense stature to be brought low and brought down. This is what Jesus is doing now. All of his enemies are coming into submission to him through the proclaiming of his word. It's a a long and slow battle, but it's what he is doing. And what this means is that we must be a people of his word, people who believe his word, who follow his word, who trust his word, who practice his word, who not only say his word is true and good for others, but we say it's true and good for our lives. We sit under his word preached regularly, we train others in his word, we train our kids with his word, and we wrestle with his word. 
if we want to understand what Jesus is doing now and what it means to be his people between the time of his resurrection and ascension and his coming again, we must be a people who put himself under, we put ourselves under his word. Now, I must admit, about halfway through this week, I thought, what were we thinking preaching in this during the Christmas season? This is going to make me just miserable to be around in my family, and I'm going to be reading so much and so frustrated, and I couldn't help but think, this is exactly what we have to be. We have to be the type of people who read all of God's word, who wrestle through the things that make sense to us and the things that are complicated, the things that are hard for our ears to hear. It's hard for us to think of Jesus as a warrior on a white horse. Most of us you know, prefer to see him as some kind of benevolent sage who's disposing of and giving wisdom about life advice. It's hard for us to picture him as this kind of warrior, but we need to be a people who are committed to this word because this is how he is winning his victory over the earth. This is how he wants history to roll out. His word will be preached, his word will be taught, it will be studied, it will be read, and it will be as though a mighty victory is won. And this is going to happen until this climactic event when he returns, okay? So how is Jesus fighting this battle now? What kind of battle is he caught up in? He's fighting this battle with his word. His word is faithful and true. And this is what John is getting a vision of. This is what Jesus is doing right now. If we could see into the heavenly realm, this is what is happening right now. He's, again, think like political cartoons that are animated. It's sensational on purpose. He is like a mighty warrior right now. And his words are like swords going into the earth, conquering and bringing victories. This is what he's doing right now. How is Jesus battling now, though? He's not just winning with his word, sending his word. He's also battling right now by leading us. He's not just leading us by his word, sorry. He's also stripping us of our flesh. This might be the most complicated part of the passage. And like I said, I really was hoping a pigeon didn't fly in the room as it has before uh, as we think about these birds coming to eat the flesh of so many things. There's no getting around how gruesome this scene is. In verse 17, there's sort of an escalation, too. This angel that's standing on the sun, I don't fully understand all that's happening, you know, gives out this announcement telling the birds, you know, it's time to eat. Come. It's time. You know, the food's at the table. Let's go. It's time to eat. And the passage is unmistakable. Come gather for the great supper of God. And there's one word that repeats itself over and over in this, this strange pa- uh, paragraph. We, we read this word, flesh over and over and over again. Kings, eat the, eat the flesh of kings. Eat the flesh of captains. Eat the flesh of mighty men, horses and riders, the flesh of all men, slave and free, small and great. Go, birds, eat the flesh of all these things. And by the end in verse 21, if you let your eyes skip down, you'll see that everyone at the end of this, this battle is slain by the word of the mouth of the warrior, and the birds have gorged on all flesh. Now, in the same way, I don't think we should understand the sword as a literal sword. I think the sword is clearly giving us a depiction of of the word of God in action. So also these birds, I'm not exactly sure how to understand them, but I think it would be wrong to sort of have this Alfred Hitchcock kind of understanding of what's going on with the birds. But the birds are some uh, some instruments uh, of judgment and of cleansing and of making things right. And the picture is of these birds being sent from the heavens and eating the flesh so that all that is left is what? A pile of dry bones. A pile of dry bones. And in a sense, it's a pile of dry bones that we find in the prophets. It's exactly what the Lord works with. The the type of uh, setting with which the Lord sends his spirit so the bones begin to rattle. And they begin to be animated and filled with spirit-empowered life. What we're given here is a vivid picture. And I think the best way to understand it is that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And so the flesh is being stripped off being taken from all humanity in this passage. And what is left over 
is the exact resources God will work to breathe new life into this world. He's destroying and plucking the flesh off, which is maybe to think of him working in your life and pulling those sinful impulses and desires which so lay you down and burden you that you so hate. He's sending birds to rip these things off of you. So that's what's left is the pile of bones with which he will send new life. Now, some of you may know this all too well, uh, this, this picture of birds stripping off your flesh. Because some of you are in a season of life where you feel like that is exactly what the Lord is having take place in your life right now. You feel like God has sent the birds directly to you and you can feel them plucking and ripping this flesh right off you. These, these parts of you that you just, you just feel so entwined with and so entangled with and, and have invoked so much pain. Maybe I'll give a personal illustration to make some sense. You know, I've been reflecting a lot over some um, many years ago, almost 13 years ago, when Kim and I were uh, close to graduating seminary, and Kim was found to be with child, as we say, during the Christmas season. She's pregnant with our first. And we had spent so much of our time, money, and energy working with a church plant in Chicago that we dearly loved, some of our favorite people in the world, and we, we couldn't fathom doing anything else other than helping see this church plant grow. But we found ourselves in a situation that we didn't see coming. The church planner uh, decided that he needed a sabbatical, and in the midst of the sabbatical, he decided he wasn't coming back. It turned the church, split the church into sort of a chaotic uh, faction of people who were angry and confused, and no one knew how to move forward. And by the time a new pastor was called, uh, the church was a shell of what it once was. And the job that we had been promised and we were confident would take place after seminary, I could work as an assistant pastor there, that job was all but gone. And I found myself with a wife who was, you know, and we're soon to have our first child and jobless. And it seemed as though the more we pushed hard and tried to make things better in this situation and to find solutions, the more it felt like birds were just ripping the flesh off of both of our confidence. It was like birds from heaven coming and telling us, You're, <laughs> you don't have what it takes. You don't understand who you are. You're, you have too much confidence in your flesh. And more and more, it just felt like no matter what we did, no matter what phone call we made, no matter what op a way which we tried our best to put ourselves in a situation where we could stay at this church in Chicago, it wasn't going to happen. And yet, and yet to our story, despite difficulty and financial hardship, we found ourselves eventually in Toronto. And if I'm honest with you, I wasn't too thrilled to be in Toronto, especially on days like today where the sun doesn't come out, you know? <laughs> and I, I couldn't understand what God was doing. It was very difficult the first couple of uh, months here in Toronto and the first year in Toronto transitioning to the new stage of life with family. I thought, what in the world is the Lord doing? Why is he doing this to us? And in many ways, what I, I think God was doing at this time is he was sending birds to just pluck flesh right off us, to make us into people we never could have imagined we'd become. I mean, if you would have told the young man, freshly ordained, who some of you have memory of, you know, unable to grow a beard, uh, if you would have told that man, <laughs> in, in, in 10 years, you'll start a church plant, and that church plant will be meeting in your neighborhood, and, and it will be filled with people. He, I would have never believed it. And it would have been very toxic for me because I was not ready for these types of things. But what was the Lord doing? He was sending birds to pluck and to rip the flesh right off me and Kim and to make us into the people ready for the next challenge in our life. And I know that he's doing the same to many of you right now. Relational hardships, diagnoses, frustrations at work. I know what, he, what is going on right now is it feels as though God is tormenting you and torturing you. But I assure you, he's not, that these things are, are shaping you and making you into the type of people in your suffering who will be ready to inherit the kingdom of God, the type of people who are ready to receive God's spirit and work with power to be these white riders on the night that follow this King Jesus into battle. 
This is what he is doing throughout history. He's leading by his word. And he's sending these birds, whoever they are, to work in our lives in such a way to make and mold us into and be kingdom people. People who are ready to be united to Jesus Christ more fully. People ready to receive God's spirit and, and with power act as his, his uh, assistants, his agents, his writers behind him in this battle of the kingdom of God. So how is Jesus fighting now? He's leading us by his word. He's stripping us of his flesh. And thirdly, let's say he is, he is protecting us by judging the nations. Now, where do we see this? Well, we see this primarily in verses 19 through 21, where we have this beast and the kings of the earth, and they're making war along with the false prophets. And they're thrown alive, we read in verse 20, quite a destructive picture into the, the fire that burns with sulfur, the lake of fire burning with sulfur. It's a, a great picture of judgment. And what we find in, is going on in this particular passage is that John, as he sits in Patmos, as he thinks about the power of the Roman Empire, which seeks to destroy the church, and for all intents and purposes, looks like it really were. You know, around 64 AD, um, Nero is, there's a fire in Rome. I, some of you know the story. And the emperor Nero conveniently finds it uh, possible to blame the Christians for this fire, which burns down a big portion of the city, a fire that he likely started. And he, for the, for the big chunk of the, the remainder of his reign, will torment Christians. He will throw them into uh, dens with wild animals so that the crowds can watch them be ripped apart by wild animals. Um, he will use them as lamps. He'll dip them in oil and light them on fire for his garden parties. Christians will, will be on crosses, on fire, so that his parties can have light in the evening. I mean, I'm not being sensational. These are things that, that really and truly happen to those who profess the faith. And John, at this point, has been exiled to the island of Patmos. And for all intents and purposes, he doesn't know that when he comes off that island, there will be a church left. He doesn't know if the Christian community will can be completely eradicated, because, you know, it's a pretty terrible sales strategy to say, hey, you should consider this, this man, Jesus, following him. You know, you might end up like some of these other greats on the pole serving as a lamppost at Nero's parties or, you know, thrown in, in the cages with wild animals. And yet, Jesus, John is getting a vision here that is going to give him a measure of holy confidence that Jesus is going to judge the nations. He is going to take care of the, a nation like Rome and any nation that stands in his way. I'm convinced that the beast that John is specifically seeing here is the Roman Empire, especially as it's colluded with, God's, with, with Jerusalem. And I'm convinced the Lord is saying that he is going to judge Rome. He's telling John to have confidence. He is going to take care of the nations. And in 69 AD, probably not long after this vision is given, we know that this is the year of the four emperors. Rome had two emperors that committed suicide and two that were murdered. Can you imagine the state of disarray that would cause our country to go through four prime ministers in one you know, particular year, much less a world in which you're, you're overseen by a sort of a emperor who acts as a dictator? John is getting a vision, and what he is being told, and what he's seeing, and what he's trying to communicate to you and to me, is that the Lord will not let nations mock his church forever. He will take care of the nations, and he's not going to do this by his church joining up in some kind of crusade. Don't for a second think that that's the vision John's getting. John's not sitting in Patmos saying, okay, well, we just need to, you know, put together some gear, train a couple of knights on horses, and then we'll be ready for this battle. No. But he has full confidence in a mysterious way, in the same way we can't see the realm of heaven right now. We also can't see what God is doing right now, what Jesus is doing right now. And right now, there is not a nation in this world that won't be held accountable to the, to the powerful reign of our Lord Jesus Christ. What am, what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say this. 
and that John is getting a glimpse that without him lifting a finger, without the Christian community putting together some kind of Christian political party in Rome to try to advocate for Christianity, without them trying to set up their own particular emperor, John is seeing a vision that Jesus will overthrow this beast that is tormenting the church. He will do it. He'll do it soon, as he says earlier in the book. And this is exactly what he does. Who here today fears the Roman emperor when you make a profession of faith in Christ? None of you. None of you do. The Lord has been true to his word. This is exactly what happens. Don't forget, at the end of Matthew's gospel, when Jesus raises from the dead, what does he say to his disciples before he sends them out into the nations? He says, all authority on heaven and earth have been given to me. There's not a single authority in this earth that isn't ultimately held accountable to Jesus. And what Jesus is doing right now is he is protecting his church. There are places in this world where the church is under immense persecution. There's a pastor that I actually have had a personal interaction with who's imprisoned in China right now that I know of. Okay, there's many others around the world. But this won't be forever. The Lord will judge the nations. He holds all power. There is no reason to doubt these things, but he will judge them by the word of his power. And in the same way, none of us today fear making a profession of faith because of Rome. So also, the, in North Korea, Christians right now are terrified to profess the name of Christ. And in years, this will be unthinkable to be worried about, you know, who's, who's in the regime in North Korea. The Lord will topple and will overthrow nations. Now, why does any of this matter? Maybe I'll try to get to the point. Thank you for listening so well. I don't know if it's if you're traumatized by the reading or if you're actually listening well. You're staring at me blankly, which could mean both. Why does any of this matter? Well, let me tell you a bit of why I think that this has mattered this week, at least as I've studied this. I don't know about you, but there's a, there's a way to tell the history of the church and the period that we're in right now as a period of great defeat. You know, I've been reading this book called The Great Dechurching by a U.S. sociologist. And in this book, uh, in the intro to the book, we, I, read, I read this line. We are currently living in the largest shift in religiosity in America in over the last 200 years. There's actually more people who have left religion then join religion during the First Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, and all the Billy Graham's crusades combined. Now, I realize he's speaking to an American, he's speaking about American statistics, but I doubt anyone in this room would say Canada is doing much better. He claims we're living in this period of the great dechurching. And not only is this, this sort of abstract data telling one story, I don't know about you, but personally, I have friends and family who are part of this deconstructing movement sort of questioning everything about Christianity in a really kind of toxic way, turning their back on much of what shaped them, much of what, what made them. I can't be the only one going through this. And there's a real temptation to believe that we're in trouble. And maybe what we need to do is change the way we talk about Christianity. Maybe we need to avoid reading passages like Revelation 19. Uh, maybe we need to change some of our ethical standards so that we can somehow fit into this new world without causing too much tension. Our, our times are so different that maybe we need to, to scrub a bit of our difficult doctrines. That's one way of, of handling it. Another way of thinking of this age of defeat is thinking, you know, this is bad. And what we need to do is we need to rally together. We're getting our, we're getting our you know, we're, we're getting defeat after defeat thanks to uh, people who are, are manipulative, people who know how to use coercion, people who know how to use the political system. And maybe the way out of this age of defeat is by banding together and winning this war the same way we, we feel we're losing it, by forming, you know, sort of uh, alliances, by uh, using coerci coer uh, coercive means to bring people back 
into sort of a Judeo-Christian faith. Is, this is, these are real temptations that people are feeling in this great de-churching to either sort of change and abandon historic Christianity or to fight fire with fire, you know, to try to, to try to win at the game in which we feel as though we're losing. Now, why does this any, any of this matter? I think this matters because John is telling us to, to relax. Now, he doesn't want you to, have, to, 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 to lack holy urgency, but he's telling you to chill out. Jesus is sitting on his throne. And nations will not stand against his rule. They will not. Maybe give you a thought experiment. Think about this. In virtually every city in the Western world, over the next couple of weeks, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people are going to sit through an oratorio. And in our city, Roy Thompson Hall, I wanted to buy tickets. Five nights. The cheapest ticket is over $100. Roy Thompson Hall is almost completely sold out. Some of the best musicians in all of Canada are going to come together, and they're going to sing an oratorio. And at one point, at one point in that oratorio, with a tradition that dates back to 1743, during the reign of King George, the music of that oratorio is going to so move people, even to this day, that they are going to stand up Stand up out of, out of a measure of attention and out of a measure of respect. And they are going to hear people with a loud voice sing, King of kings, Lord of lords. They're going to hear people sing, The kingdoms of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever and ever and ever. This is going to happen in every city in our world right now, and this would have been unthinkable to John as he sits in the island of Patmos, being exiled as maybe the last living church leader, wondering how the church is going to move forward. That is going to happen in our city. This would be absolutely unthinkable, that our whole city will be captivated by singing King of Kings, Lord of Lords, titles that are coming directly from this passage. I'm not saying we shouldn't have some measure of holy urgency, and I'm not saying we shouldn't be involved in thinking wisely about what it means to be involved in the political realm. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But what I am telling you this is that we live in an anxious time. And something about social media, something about our time has made us a people who are, who are anxious and insecure, and we have our backs up, and we're overly sensitive. And if anything, what I hope you see from this vision is that Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth. And he will bring down corrupt rulers and leaders by the word of his power. What do the armies do? Do they march behind him with swords? No. No. It's almost, the battle's almost inconsequential. It's, he takes down the beast so quickly, it's almost no challenge. It's such a boring battle scene in some senses. What I'm trying to say is this. We must have a deep and resounding confidence. Though all of Canada may turn from Christ, Though church attendance might reach a record low in our city, a record 200-year low, we need not fear the Lord is reigning powerfully in heaven over the nations, and nothing will stand in his way. Nothing! There is no beast great enough. We don't need to resort to coercive measures. We don't need to resort to playing dirty. We don't need to change the sort of historic Christian faith. We need to sing King of Kings, Lord of Lords, forever and ever, hallelujah, and with great confidence go into our world and love and serve these people that God has asked us, has made for us neighbors. This is the call of the church, and this is why this stuff matters. Listen, as surely as a baby was born in that manger, as surely as that baby died on a cross, as surely as that man rose from the dead, he reigns now at God's right hand, and he is bringing in his victory. And there's all kinds of enemies of his that are going to have to go under his feet. The last one to come is death. He is reigning right now. And what it means to be his people is to be a people who are led by his word, 
of people who know the experience of feeling your flesh ripped off you, and of people who just simply follow behind him as he brings nations, as he rises nations and as nations disappear. Ours, ours is a time in which we must, in an age of incredible anxiety, we must have a non-anxious presence and confidence that Jesus is indeed King of kings and Lord of lords, and he will win the battle. And though our minds may be raging with doubts, though we might be insecure and, dis- and, and, and frightened and discouraged about where things are going forward, fear no more. Christ is the king. He is reigning confidently right now. There is no one that can stand in his way. And John is getting a vision of it, and he wants you and I to have it today. The call that I'm making to you today, the call that John would have for you to be today, is to be the church, to be the people who sing, King of kings, Lord of lords, forever and ever. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. To be the people who are confident that he will reign forever. And in being the church, in being people who follow this Christ, to trust that the Lord will bring his victory. One little word, and he could, he could knock out a nation right now. Have this kind of confidence. This Christmas, let's sing King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and truly and deeply believe he will reign forever and ever. And bring that attitude into the difficult family relationships you have, the difficult suffering that the Lord has put on your plate, the difficult issues that are before you. Bring that confidence into an anxious time and trust that the Lord indeed is the great king and he is reigning. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you uh, for this vision that our brother John gets, and though we do not fully understand it, we trust that it's part of the glorious calling of your people to wrestle through these mysteries that you've put before us, and we thank you so much that in Jesus Christ, we can have tremendous confidence that though our time might be a time of profound suffering, it will be but a blink of an eye compared to the reign of Christ and the goodness that comes as he sits on his throne. Pray, Father, that you give us a holy confidence that wouldn't turn into arrogance. And pray that you give us a holy confidence that would still have a measure of urgency and that you'd use us to share more to more people this good news that Christ is indeed King of Kings. We ask this in the name of Christ, the one who sits on the white horse, our great King and ruler. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ChristChurchToronto.ca or email us at info at ChristChurchToronto.ca.